Well, as I said, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start in verse 20. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And last week we looked at the foundation of the resurrection as the Apostle Paul was was speaking to a church that we'll see this week is, is being misled in their beliefs. And so it's causing them to think a certain way and do certain things that don't line up with the teaching of Jesus Christ and by extension the apostolic teaching of the apostles. And so we're going to look at that this morning. And as I had already mentioned, as you see in your bulletin, the title of this morning's message is The Power of the Resurrection. And when I say power, what I'm saying is the power it has to make an effect or a change on somebody or something, specifically in the lives of the people and those of you that are believers are a testament to that, and even the power to change cultures and the powers to really cause a paradigm shift in the lives of people. Now, a paradigm is a a framework uh, by which somebody, like a lens that we kind of see the world through, a way we interpret the world. And so when Christ rose from the dead, there was an actual paradigm shift. It changed the way people saw the past, the present, and, in, and the future as well. Uh, and so today, as we go through the text, uh, I pray that you will grow in your understanding of the resurrection and the power of the resurrection, and it will have a paradigm shift, or cause you to have a paradigm shift, and it will reform you in your faith. It will ref, uh, reaffirm, excuse me, let's start over. It will reaffirm your faith, It will reform the way that you live on a daily basis, and it will reshape the way you worship God. And so let's go into the text this morning, uh, and starting in verse 20, again, as Paul continues his argument for the resurrection and its implications. So starting in verse 20, we're going to read down to verse 34, and then we'll come back and make some Uh, observations and some application. So the Apostle Paul writes, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits." After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then? Are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, 
by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fight with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So this is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church. And he's again, last week we saw like, well, what if the resurrection is not true? What are the implications of that? And we looked at the positive side of that. And that was just the foundation of the resurrection. But this week, we're going to look at it from a different point of view, as I mentioned in the beginning, is the power of the resurrection, the effect that it has to change our whole perspective. As I said, the paradigm shifts. And it's going to change three paradigms that we'll look at as we go back through the text. So turn, uh, go back to verse 20 with me for a second. And you're going to see, since Christ has risen, that there's changes that have taken place. Again, cataclysmic changes in the world, in the past, in the present, and as we'll see, uh, in the future. And we're going to be studying this over the next month or so. So we might not cover every aspect of the resurrection today, but I think over the next few weeks, we pretty much will. And so again, let's, just, let's look at the changes or the effect that the resurrection has. And so let's look at the first one. The resurrection, or Jesus' resurrection, marks the beginning of the harvest. Look again at verse 20 through 22. He says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So Christ here is described as the first fruits of all those who sleep. A way of saying those who have died. But what is the Apostle Paul talking about when he says first fruits? Well, the first fruits, looking back to the Old Testament, were the first successful harvest of a season for the farmers. They would go out and they would find the first fruits in their crops. And this guaranteed that it was the beginning of, the, of a fruitful harvest season. There was a great harvest to come because the first fruits had already blossomed. And so Paul uses this as a metaphor to describe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ himself is the first fruit that guarantees that there is going to be a greater harvest to come. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. He's saying, so Christ is the first fruit of all those who have sleep or who have died, and he brings about life. Through him comes all life. Those who die in him will also be made alive. Now, the understanding of this section is that we have to know before we understand it fully is that the Corinthians here, as I mentioned earlier, have been misled into thinking that, well, we've lost all those people that have died. They're gone. You know, they're not going to rise from the dead. For some reason, they seem to be believing this by the way Paul is arguing here in chapter 15. And he's saying, no, since Christ has risen, we all are going to rise, all of us who are in Christ. And that's his argument. So that's the first paradigm shift for them is that they need to realize that Jesus Christ's resurrection, it begins the final resurrection, the total consummation of all things. And again, their argument is, well, if Christ defeated death, then how come everybody is still dying? And we'll get to that answer in a few moments. 
But he's just reminding them that Christ has come. He's the first fruit. Just like a farmer, when the first fruit comes, he knows that a greater harvest is coming. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is marking here. And so the question logically would be, well, when will that happen? When will this resurrection of all those that we love and of ourselves take place? We'll go to verse 24. And this is where he, he said, well, actually start in verse 23, so it gives you a better context. And speaking of being risen from the dead, he says, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruit, so Christ is the first fruit that comes. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So he says, when Christ comes, that's when everyone else will rise from the dead. So the answer to the question for the Corinthians is, when will these things take place, or why is there still death? And he's correcting that view. He's like, well, you guys don't understand. Christ is risen, and then later on, everyone else will be resurrected from the dead. When is that? Verse 23 says, that will happen at Christ's coming. And if you just skip down to verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15, he elaborates on this a little more. He says this, he goes, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed, just like we sung a few moments ago, in, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So he's saying, when is the resurrection takes place? At the coming, at the second coming of Jesus Christ that we are all looking forward to. When that takes place, then all those who are dead, those too will rise. And if there happens to be believers around at that time, then they too will change in an instant, be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. The Apostle Paul elaborates on this a little more. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. We read this last week, but now let's read it in this context of the second coming and when the, the uh, resurrection will take place of all believers. And again, even in Thessalonians, you get a hint that he's trying to correct some false teachings. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. Right there, there's a, there's a clue that they didn't truly understand what the resurrection meant. So he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. So he's saying, Yes, people have died, but we are in Christ, and we have a hope that one day we're going to see them again, and they're going to rise again. So we don't mourn like those who have no hope of a future resurrection. So he's correcting that. And why does he have that belief? Verse 14, this is what we taught on last week. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He goes, since we believe that Jesus died and resurrected, we also believe that those who have died before us will come back to life when Christ returns. Look at verse 15. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we who are alive and, and remain shall be caught up together and with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So he's elaborating on what he said here in 1 Corinthians to another church in Thessalonica about the same misunderstanding about those who have died before us. He's saying there's coming a time in the future at Christ's second coming that when he comes back, he is going to raise the dead bodily and they will get their new bodies, which will be talked about next week. And those of us who are alive will also be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And this is what it's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians. And again, he's elaborating what he's teaching here in just this one verse in 1 Corinthians. So that's the first um, kind of like paradigm shift in our worldview is that, you know what, we believe in a resurrection and we believe that it will happen at Christ's second coming. Again, Jesus' resurrection marks the beginning of that harvest. That signaled it. So let's go back to our text in verse 24. And then we'll see the second paradigm shift, which is Jesus' resurrection marks the death of the world system. So we're going to read verses 24 through 28. In that context, he's talking about what happens at the time of his second coming because Jesus rose from the dead. Look at what it says. So after saying that at the second coming, he says, Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father and when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he had put all his enemies under his feet. Let's stop right there. So what is he talking about here? He says, at Christ's second coming, that is the end. The current world system as we know it, or if it changes by that time, will end. Christ will abolish all rule, all authority, and all power. And he has demonstrated that he is more powerful than all these things by his resurrection of the dead. He's going to subdue all things, all world authorities, all world powers, and all rulers, those that are visible and invisible. All this will take place at his second coming. This is what he's talking about. He's going to victoriously stand on top of them, and that's why he shows that they are under his feet. He's standing over them as a victor, like his, his foot is on the neck of this world system, defeating it. Defeating it. And this episode of Christ defeating his enemies is apocalyptically described in Revelation. So turn there with me. This is a great uh, vision of what's going to happen. Turn with me to Revelation 19. And it's, it's a fairly large section, but know that this is what he's talking about, the second coming. This is the vision that he sees what's going to happen as he defeats all rulers and powers and authorities. And even your Bible might have a, a, a little uh, heading that says the coming of Christ. This is the second coming of Christ here depicted in the apocalypse of John. Here, uh, Revelation 19, verse 11. And this is what John sees, his vision. He goes, I see heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he judges and wages war. You can already tell there's a lot of symbolic imagery, a white horse signifying victory, right? So you'll see that throughout this text as he's symbolically illustrating what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians. And you could tell by the imagery. Uh, So verse 12, And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And And on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You could already tell all this imagery points to Jesus Christ coming back, right? All these titles and names about who this person is coming on the white horse. The apostle goes on, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble, For the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the east and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So you see all those rulers, those powers, those authorities are ready to fight against God at the second coming. And what happens to them? Verse, they're, obviously they get defeated. He hears an angel calling all the birds to come and feed on the flesh of those who are about to be destroyed. Verse 20 says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So again, here's the apocalyptic imagery of the second coming of Jesus Christ. You get that vivid imagery. He's going to defeat this world system. Totally destroy it. And again, this all happens at his second coming. And so here again, this marks, Jesus' resurrection marks the death of our current world system. It will be transformed. It will be totally different at the end. The third paradigm shift that I want us to see, and this is one that we sing about a lot, right, is that Jesus' resurrection marks the death of death. Jesus' resurrection marks the death of death. If you look at verse 26 in our text, he says this, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. When Christ rose from the dead, he put an end to death. 
And again, remember, this is what the Corinthians are saying. Well, if you put an end to death, why are people still dying? That's their question, and that's why they tend to believe, well, maybe there is no resurrection because you know, our friends and family are dying and we don't see them anymore. But again, he's clarifying that it's going to come at the end. They had a misunderstanding. Somebody was leading them astray. Because we are told over and over again that Christ defeated death, and death no longer has any power over us as believers. And again, he demonstrated that he was more powerful in death by raising out of the grave and raising to new life and being resurrected, right? This is what Jesus performed, demonstrating he was who he says he was. And again, the, the Corinthians, they intellectually have been taught this and maybe even know it, but they aren't living like they know it. And again, they're starting to do some things that, which we'll talk about in a moment, that kind of contradict their own beliefs. And so again, Paul is answering them, saying that at the second coming, the reality of this promise where death is ultimately destroyed will be banished. Again, look in verse Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, drop down to verse 52, and we'll read through, actually read through verse 55, 52 through 55 in your text. This was his, con- his conclusion about this. He says, remember again, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. And he goes on, for this perishable, speaking of our body, must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will put on, will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the same. That is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The final defeat of death, which will happen at Christ's second coming, at the final resurrection. That's what he's saying. This is what he's reminding the Corinthians. I'm correcting this misleading that you guys are going through or somebody's misleading you or you're beginning to doubt that guess what? Yes, your family and loved ones are dying, but they are going to rise again at the second coming when death is totally destroyed. And I like the picture that is given to us again in the book of Revelation. Turn back to Revelation. Look at verse, uh, chapter 20 this time, verses 13 through 15. Where with the same imagery, he talks about how death is destroyed. He says this, Revelation 20, verse 13. And when the sea gave up the dead, which was in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them, and they were judged, everyone them according to their deeds. And then look at this. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So you get that imagery where Christ picks up death, if it was personified, and throws it in the lake of fire where it sits forever. It will no longer affect humanity. It's a total paradigm shift, right? We all know that people are born, they live, and they die. Well, guess what? At the second coming, there will be no more death because Christ rose. He's the first fruits, guaranteeing that all will rise. The feet of the defeat of death is finally 
finished, fully consummated. And so, again, Paul's conclusion or application for the church, he says, now that you know this, there's certain things or certain ways that we should live because of this. And that's what he explains in verses 29 through 34, where we'll close out our sermon this morning. So he says, knowing the power of the resurrection, knowing these things, how do you live in this present age? How should the Corinthians live? And by application and implication, how should you and I live who believe in the resurrection? Well, the first one is this, to be genuine. Be genuine. Basically saying, live out what you say you believe. And he gives two examples of this, the first one being negative. And this is one that stumps a, a lot of commentators, and there is no firmly held, what is he talking about here? But we can make some, some gener- generalities here in verse 9, because look at what he says in verse 29, look at what he says. He says, otherwise, basically, if, if the resurrection isn't true to, to the Corinthians, he goes, Otherwise, what will those who do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So apparently there were some within the Corinthian community who believed that they needed to be baptized for their dead friends or relatives. And he's saying, if you guys don't believe in the resurrection, why are you guys even going through this, this religious or cultic thing that you're doing of being baptized for the dead? It doesn't jive, right? It's hypocritical. On one hand, you're saying you don't believe in the resurrection, but on the other hand, you're being baptized for the dead to give them you know, safe passage or something. You know, like they're like currently in limbo or purgatory of some sort, and you have to, baptize, you have to be baptized for them. He goes, it doesn't make, doesn't make a logical sense that you don't believe in, in resurrection, but you're being baptized for resurrection. That's not genuine. You're not being true to what you say you deny or what you believe. Now, the controversy comes, is like, well, what was this that they were doing? And this, why doesn't Paul say that this is a bad thing? Nobody knows. It just seems that there's nowhere else in Scripture that this is taught being baptized for the dead. And Paul's just making an observation of their hypocrisy of their living. And, and I, I tend to hold to that belief as well. But the point being is that they're not genuine. Again, they're, they're not doing what they say they believe. They're, their lives don't match up. And he continues on in verses 30 through 32 with another example of, of maybe not being genuine. He says, why, why are we also in danger every hour? He says, I protest, brethren, by boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If by human motives I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? So what he's saying here is, like, why are we doing these religious things? Why are we living for God, brethren, if there's no resurrection of the dead? Why are we being put in danger or being persecuted on a daily basis for what we believe if we truly don't believe in the resurrection of the dead? It's the, the opposite of the baptism. Here they're doing good things, you know, sharing the gospel so you know uh sharing the gospel because he talks about himself fighting in ephesus wild beasts why do we do these things if there's no resurrection of the dead 
you know, if you think of our own day, we say, why, and we, I mentioned this last week, why do we come to church? Why do we worship God if there's no resurrection of the dead? Why do we do religious activities if we don't really live out our faith? Why do we say one thing and live the other way if there's no resurrection of the dead? That's his point here. And he concludes at the end of verse 32, if, there, if the dead aren't raised, he says, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no hope, so to speak. If there's no hope of the resurrection, no assurance of the resurrection, then what we are doing here, he's telling the Corinthians, is a waste of time. We might as well live it up in this world because this is all that we have. There is no future assurance of a resurrection. And that's why he says, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection, then let's just do what we want. Because nothing matters in the end. We won't be held accountable for anything. There's nothing to look forward to. That's what he's telling the church. He's like, be genuine. What you believe in your head, live it out in your life. What you believe in your heart, live it out in your life. Don't be hypocritical. And that truth still holds true for you and me today. As we sit here this morning, as we worship God as we pray, as we read the word of God and do quote-unquote religious things, but then we go out from this place and live like none of that, basically church stays in church, that's not genuine. He says, you might as well not even come to church. You might as well eat and drink because tomorrow you die because you don't really believe it. So the application for us is let's be genuine If we truly believe in the resurrection, let's live like we believe in the resurrection. That there is a judgment at the end. There is something to live forward to. There are people that we are going to see again that have died in Christ. Let's be genuine. The second point of application he gives in verse 33, and that is to be careful. Be careful. Remember I said that there's something going on in Corinth. They're being misled, led astray. And he's trying to correct that. And that's why he says in verse 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's why he says be careful. The Corinthians, again, were being deceived. They were keeping bad company in the sense that somebody was leading them astray from the gospel leading them astray from what they've been taught. And again, this was, had led to bad practices as being baptized for the dead and bad beliefs, all in the name of religion. And so that same uh, warning or application applies to you and me today. We need to be careful. We need to be careful of the company we keep, that they're not leading us astray. They're not leading us away from God. We want to keep our most intimate relationships and company for those people that are going to lead us closer to God. Now, does that mean, well, I I work with, you know, quote, unquote, not me, not me. So I work with bad company. Does that mean we we can't go to work? We can't hang out with non-believers? No, because we're in the world, right? But we're not of it. Matter of fact, we need to go into the world to be a witness, but we can't let them influence us, so we need to keep our relationships at a certain distance. That's why earlier in in Corinthians, he tells them, don't be unequally yoked to non-believers. 
in, in the marriage or in your, in your marriage relationship, importantly, he's like, don't look to date non-believers because they're going to drag you away. They're not going to bring you closer to God. You're going to compromise, so be careful. And that goes for any relationship we have. Be careful in your relationship. Be very careful. Again, bad company corrupts good morals. It's probably something all of us as parents have told our children. You know, you're going to become like your friends. You know, you start to take on their traits, their characteristics, their beliefs. And this is the problem as we've been going through the book of Isaiah over the past year. Israel keeps taking on, they keep bad company and they keep coming, they keep becoming like them, worshiping false gods, going after false idols. And so the Apostle Paul here tells the church at Corinth, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals, to be careful, be careful. The next point of application for us is to be alert, be alert, look at verse 34. He says, become sober-minded as you ought. And that sober-minded is talking about don't be intoxicated by that bad company that you're keeping. It's not necessarily talking about alcohol, but that's the imagery that, it, you know, when you're intoxicated with alcohol, you are less aware of your surroundings. You can't judge correctly. So that's why he says, be sober-minded. Don't be intoxicated with the things of this world, with its values, with its belief system. Be alert against that. Be aware of those doctrines that can lead you astray. Remember again, Corinth was being led astray. He's saying, you guys, be alert. It's kind of like saying, wake up. Wake up from your stupor. You guys are being misled. You need to be alert. Again, instead of being intoxicated by this world's values, the world's systems, We as believers should be intoxicated with the Lord our God. He should be our chief influencer in our life, our chief counselor, our chief love, our chief pursuit in this life. I think the Apostle Paul says it uh, perfectly in Philippians. Turn there with me. Philippians chapter 3. This is what he says in verse 7 through 14. He says, speaking of his current life, And this is something we should all seek to emulate. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, speaking of his past life, those things I have counted as lost. Why? For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Look at what he desires. He says that I might know him and the power, this is what we're talking about, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or I have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to that which lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You get that sense that the Apostle Paul says there's so much more to know about Christ. There's so much more intimately I can get to know him and know the power, he says, of his resurrection. That's what we're talking about here. Be intoxicated with God. God should be your all in all. God should be the foremost thing that you love in your life. That's what he's telling the Corinthians. Be alert. Don't be influenced by bad company. Be sober-minded. And then he goes on and gives them a fourth point of application. Pretty simple. Stop sinning. Right? Stop sinning. Okay, Apostle Paul, we'll stop sinning. What is he talking about there? Right? Because we know that we are all going to sin. We're going to continue sinning till the day that we die because of this body that we live in. He, but what he's talking about, he's saying being righteous. Let your life be marked by righteousness. Stop living in your sinful past. Right? You've already been delivered from this thing. And again, he said earlier, pursue after God. Live righteously. Don't use the freedom that, hey, I'm a believer and, and God's going to be merciful and gracious to me. He says this in Romans. Don't use your freedom as a license for loose living because this doesn't attract people to Christ. Look at the very next sentence after he says, he says, stop sinning for some have no knowledge of God. And I speak this to your shame. This is going to be our next point of application. He's like, you guys should live righteous so that you're a witness to the other people out there who don't know God. The implication is you guys are not doing that. You're using your freedom and sinning, and there's people out there that are dying, and your lifestyle's not reflecting Christ and bringing them into a relationship with God. So really, the, the last two points of application, be righteous and be a witness, go hand in hand. He's like, be a witness. Live right for God, not only because you love the Lord, but because there's people watching, there's people dying. How many of us have loved ones and friends and family and neighbors who are dying spiritually? Do they look at your life and see some uh, life marked with sin? Taking license to do what you want, not caring about being a witness towards them? I've said this over and over again, that Christianity is not about ourselves. It's about living for Christ and living for others. We come like third on the list, right? We live to be a witness to those around us. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, stop sinning for some of you have no, for some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. He's like, you guys are supposed to be a witness to the world, and you're not. If you read the book of Corinthians, Corinthians were involved in all kinds of sins. And they weren't being a very good witness in their town. They were letting the world system affect them rather than themselves affecting the world. And so that's, that's what it is to be a witness. Are we affecting those around us or are they infecting us as that bad company and corrupting good morals? Since Christ has risen, he's saying, our paradigm shift should be about living not for ourselves, but for other people, being a witness to them. Because, again, there's a lost world out there, and they need Christ. We have this great message of the power of the resurrection. And so I ask you and myself, are we being that witness? 
There's people around us dying. How can we lead them to Christ? Again, by being that witness and by the grace of God, God can shift their paradigm as well. And they can look forward to the resurrection at the end. Let's pray. Lord God, we are just so thankful that we have the assurance that at your second coming, whether we are alive or we are dead physically, we know that we will be resurrected into newness of life. And we look forward to that day, Lord God. But in the meantime, I pray that you would help us to live in the ways that we've seen this morning, Lord. That you would help us to to be genuine in our life. Lord, that you would help us to be careful about the company that we keep. That we would not be led astray and to lose focus or lose our love for you. Lord God, that you would help us to be alert. And Lord God, that you would help us to be righteous for your glory. And finally, Lord God, that you would help us to be a witness to this dying world around us. For we have so many people in our lives that if you were to come back today, they would be lost for all eternity. And Lord, we know ultimately it is by your grace that they would come to know you and not anything that we can do. But you've called on us to be a witness. And so we pray that you would help us to do that today until the day that we die, Lord. Help us to follow you with all of our heart. Help us to pursue after you as the Apostle Paul described in Philippians chapter 3. We ask for your help in doing this and we thank you, Lord God, for your word and for the power of the resurrection. And we pray this all in your name. Amen.